Good evening. Welcome to uh, my presentation for the uh, Society of the Sacred Heart for 2020. These are certainly unprecedented times and things are a little bit unusual, so we're doing all of our uh, presentations virtually. So my heartfelt greetings to the members of the, of the Society of the Sacred Heart, also to uh, members of the other members of the Institute that might be watching and uh, to anybody else that might get to see the video. We'll start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. The truth is like a lion. It doesn't need to be defended. Simply turn it loose and it will defend itself. This quote is attributed to St. Augustine, and it is about lions that I wish to speak to you today, or rather one particular lion. Clemens, August, Joseph, Emmanuel, Pius, Antonius, Hubertus, Maria, Count von Galen, referred to those who were close to him by a contraction of his first two names, Clau, and later after becoming the Bishop of the city of Münster, in Westphalia in Germany as the Lion of Münster by the German people in his diocese. Von Galen was born on March the 16th, 1878, to pious parents at the Burg Dinklage in Westphalia, uh, sorry, in Lower Saxony in what is now Northwestern Germany. And he was baptized three days later on the Feast of St. Joseph, March 19th. This came, or his birth came, at a time that was uh, toward the end of the beginning, as it were, of the Kulturkampf, or the culture wars that had been started by the then-Chancellor Otto von Bismarck of the Second Reich, or the German Empire. A few words about these events uh, will sound vaguely familiar to us in our difficult times right now. Catholics were struggling to define their place in Germany's Second Reich. Under the primarily Protestant and Prussian-led Germany of von Bismarck. The culture wars were sparked initially by publications that had been uh, disseminated by the Holy Father, then Pius IX. Uh, the first being a publication of a document called A, a Syllabus of Errors. And later... Uh, his publication of the Doctrine of Papal Infallibility. In his Syllabus of Errors, Pius IX condemned, quote, the new intellectual attitudes toward modern, towards modernized society in every type. Pius's Doctrine of Papal Infallibility led to the belief that Catholics in Germany could no longer or could not be loyal sons and daughters of the German country, the German fatherland, because of the misperception of a divided loyalty between uh, the church and the state. In 1871, von Bismarck had decided to begin to move against the church in Germany. And at that time, within von Bismarck's government, there was a ministry of culture. The ministry of culture had two divisions, a Catholic division and a Protestant division. But the, uh, the Catholic division uh, under the new changes that von Bismarck promulgated 
was abolished and everything was concentrated under the Protestant division. New legislation was passed in the early 1870s that sought to restrict participation in the influence of the Catholic clergy in the lives of the Catholic populace. The German government outlawed the participation of clergy in political life. Catholic schools were placed under the control of the German government. Catholic associations were disbanded and members of the Jesuit order were exiled from Prussian soil. By 1875, the institutions of various religious orders throughout uh, Germany had been seized and nearly all religious orders had been disbanded, disbanded and their members exiled or imprisoned. The German state assumed the role of appointing bishops and in 1874 and in 1875, the May laws, uh, like the month of May, were enacted, which placed bishops under the control of the German state and empowered the Second Reich with the authority for training and assigning priests. Priests resisted, and as many as uh, 1,800 or so of them were imprisoned during this time. Pius IX responded by declaring that these May laws were illegal, were null and void, and by declaring that priests that complied with them would be excommunicated and by encouraging the passive resistance of the German people. The Bishop of Münster at the time, Johann Bernhard Brinkmann, fled to Holland in 1876. He had already been arrested and imprisoned for about 40 days, and he fled to Holland to escape a repeat arrest and a longer imprisonment. And he had ministered his see in, uh, in exile. Upon his return to the diocese, diocesan city in 1884, he dedicated the city of Münster to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. This is the world into which Klau von Galen was born, the 11th of 13 children. His parents were extremely pious, and his grandfather, the, uh, the patriarch Matthias, or Matthias, uh, when erecting the chapel at Burgdinklage, had uh, placed over the family chapel a door, a chapel door, a quote from the book of Joshua. I and my house will serve the Lord. These words were not only a statement of his intention, but were also prophetic. Von Galen's grandfather, Matthias, could number among his descendants two bishops, eight priests, two theologians, and 16 religious sisters. Elizabeth von Galen, Klaus' mother, uh, instructed all of her children in their catechism. So thorough was her teaching that Clemens August remarked that he never learned anything new about his catechism until during his formal education at the theological training, excuse me, for theological training in the seminary. Elizabeth also ensured that the children were well-versed in pious acts of charity. The children, especially the girls, would make clothes for the poor inhabitants of the estate, and the children would also make rosaries for the various children that lived around Burgstinklage. Ferdinand von Galen, Klaus' father, led conversations in the evening about the political events in the German Empire and led the family in evening prayer. He made a point to mark special religious events in the minds of his children. One event sentinel in Clement August's mind 
was that of his first communion. For uh, Ferdinand uh, gave Clemens and his brother Franz, uh, the brother to whom he was closest, a sapling linden tree and instructed them to plant the trees on either side of the bridge that led over the moat to the Burgstinklage, with the admonition that the trees, as they grew, would be a reminder of both, to both of them uh, of their reception of their first Holy Communion. Bismarck's anti-Catholic laws had a substantial effect on the education of Clemens August. Religious schools were limited in Germany, and Clemens and Franz were sent to the Stella Matutina in Feldkirch, Austria, where they were to be instructed by the Jesuit fathers, who were still in exile from Germany uh, and who ran locally a Latin school. The Jesuit education was not rec uh, recognized by the Prussian government at the time, and so the brothers had to return to Oldenburg, uh, a city uh, not too far from Munster, to be educated in Vexta, uh, excuse me, at Vexta uh, until completing the leaving examination in 1896. Von Galen entered seminary training in 1900 and was ordained a priest in, uh, excuse me, he entered seminary training in Innsbruck in 1900 and was ordained a priest on May the 28th, 1904. By this time, he'd become an imposing figure. He stood a full six foot six tall, and his physical pr presence combined with his regal bearing made him a force with which to be reckoned. He was at first assigned to be the assistant for his uncle, who was an auxiliary bishop there in Munster. And he attended his uncle through various uh, ecclesiastical activities, assisting him at confirmations and traveling with him around the diocese. Clements began to see the role of the bishop and his relationship to the people of the diocese. Even more providentially, his uncle bequeathed his crozier to the shrine of Our Lady of the Seven Dolors at Telta. Telta is a small village of about 5,000 souls, about seven or eight miles east, northeast of Munster. Um, and the condition of uh, the bishop, of the uncle leaving the crozier there, was that if any other von Gallen family member was to attain the Episcopal rank of bishop, then the crozier would pass to that individual. The shrine of Our Lady of the Seven Dolors at Telta became a partic of particular importance to Clements August. Throughout his life, he would often go on pilgrimage to the shrine, at times setting out on foot in the early morning hours, even at uh, four or so in the morning, and walking alone the seven or eight miles, contemplating his rosary and calling on the Blessed Mother, to whom he had a particular devotion. Later, near the end of his life in 1946, he would visit the shrine one last time in the week before his death as the first stopping point upon his return from the Cardinal's Consistory in Rome where he had received the Cardinal's Red Zucchetto. In 1906, von Galen's uncle died, and it was at this point that the young priest was sent to Berlin, where he was served as an assistant priest and later a curate at the parish of St. Matthias in Berlin. He worked particularly closely with the Catholic workers in the capital city, and this was a tumultuous time in the early 20th century. Uh, Clemens August was actually in Berlin from about 1906 up until 1929, so um, about 23 years. 
The new movements in the cosmopolitan city were problematic. Uh, the people were enamored with socialism, and the young priests faced many challenges in keeping the various faithful occupied with the life of the church so as not to be distracted and lured into the ever-burgeoning political affairs during and after the First World War and during the years of the Weimar Republic. In 1929, von Gallen was called back to Munster, where he was to become the Paris priest at St. Lambert's Church, or Lambertikirche, as it's called, the market church near the center of Munster, not far from the great cathedral of the city. Almost prophetically, in 1932, von Gallen published a work which to, was to become a sensation, Die Pest des Laicismus und ihre Erscheinungsformen, or The Plague of the Laicism and Its Manifestations, in which he discussed the gradual turning away of man from God since the Middle Ages and man's increasing obsession with things related to the material aspects of life and to nature and its related values. The work was more timely than he had anticipated for, in 1933, the National Socialist Party achieved political power in Germany and Adolf Hitler was elected their chancellor. Increasingly, the red flags bearing the swastika were present in the city of Münster and many of the bishops dropped their opposition to National Socialism with the result that increasingly men were seen in the Cathedral of Münster wearing the uniforms of the Third Reich. Archbishop Polgenburg was the bishop of Münster at that time and he died in January 5th of 19 excuse me on January 5th 1933. His replacement was to be the first bishop appointed since the National Socialists had achieved power, and also the first bishop since the signing of a concordat as a diplomatic treaty to regular, regularize German-Vatican relations in 1929. Von Galen was eventually selected as bishop after uh, several votes and some negotiation. And although the Nazis were empowered to do so by the concordat, they did not veto his selection. Uh, there are probably two reasons that the Nazis didn't do this. First, von Gallen was seen as a patriot, and the Nazis did not feel that he would oppose the restoration of the fatherland and, the, and that the government did not want to see as an immediate opposition to the church on the selection of the first bishop of the Concordat. The administration would later regret this decision. At first, as a first instance, Clemens August traveled to Berlin to meet with Reichmarschall Goering on October the 18th, 1933, to fulfill his obligation of state allegiance under the Concordat. He took with him his own personal copy of the New Testament and his pectoral cross for the occasion. Upon arriving, he met with Goering, and Goering was apologetic as it seemed that there were no copies of the New Testament or a cross or a crucifix around uh, by which Clemens August could take this oath. Clemens August reassured him that he should not worry, as he had brought his own just in case. Clemens August was consecrated Bishop of Munster on October the 28th, 1933, taking as his Episcopal motto, Nec laudibus, nec timore. Uh, neither lauds nor fear or nor, neither praises nor fear. 
It did not take him long to speak out against the evolving principles of National Socialism. And in his first Lenten pastoral letter, written in January 1934, von Galen spoke out from the pulpit in the church against the neo-paganism that was the essential element of the National Socialist agenda. And I'm going to read a little bit from his letter. Uh, this is one of my sources, by the way. This is the line of Münster, uh, and it's written by Daniel Utrecht of the Oratory. There are a couple of other books that I utilized as well, one by um, Heinrich Portman, um, and Heinrich Portman was actually von Gallen's personal chaplain, so this was actually the first biography that was written about him. And then the other book, Bishop von Gallen, German Catholicism and National Socialism by Greek Polella. In his uh, Lenten letter, von Gallen wrote, Anyone who seeks to destroy the moral law in man attacks the foundations of religion and of culture. But this is done by those who say that morality is valid for a people only insofar as it promotes the interests of the race. Clearly, this puts the race above morality, blood above the law. Indeed, this false teaching goes on to claim that the Ten Commandments were merely the expression of the morality of the Jewish people and the commandments would be different for different peoples with different blood. In fact, the Ten Commandments, which were promulgated amid thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, are obligatory for all peoples. The content of the Ten Commandments is written as the moral law on the hearts of all men, including the pagans, as the Apostle Paul teaches. The Nazis soon realized that they had a formidable enemy in the Episcopal seat of Münster. The newspapers and local officials spoke out against von Gallen for mixing in party politics, but von Gallen was quite shrewd in reminding them, quoting the Fuhrer, that he, Hitler, wanted to place, quote, place the work of renewing our people on the firm rock of the Christian faith. No one should dare to shake one's trust in the solemnly, solemnly given words of our Fuhrer. As the Nazi administration began to further consolidate power and to inject its ideology into the various facets of German life, including uh, uh, abolishing religious schools and uh, trying to control various aspects of uh, ecclesiastical festivals, Von Gallen opposed them regarding interference with Catholic schools and with religious proceedings, all the while relying on and attempting to work within the confines of the diplomatic framework set forth in the Concordat of 1929. In February 1936, Von Gallen was in Zanten, uh, a town near the Dutch border. Uh, he was visiting an ancient site of Christian pilgrimage from about the 4th or 5th century, with the intention of reconsecrating an altar to the martyred Roman soldiers, uh, St. Victor and his companions. Uh, as a side note, the, the Roman soldiers had been martyred because their compatriots in the Roman army did not feel that they would, uh, that St. Victor and his companions would uphold the needs of the Roman army uh, and would rather rely upon their Catholicism. It was at this event that he delivered what was later to be referred to as the Fresh Graves speech, specifically speaking out against the events 
of the night of June the 30th, 1935, known today as the Night of the Long Knives. It was on this night that Hitler had further consolidated power by having certain political opponents, such as Ernst Röhm, leader of the uh, SA, the Brown Shirts, and Erich Klausner, former leader of the political group Catholic Action, murdered. Von Gallen said, there are in German lands fresh graves in which rest the ashes of men whom the Catholic people regard as martyrs because they see in their lives the witness of a most loyal fulfillment of duty to God and fatherland, to people and to church, and because the darkness that surrounds their deaths causes great unrest. And how frequently are officials and bureaucrats, parents and teachers, placed under strong pressures of conscience when they are forced to choose between loyalty to God and their Christian conscience and the good opinion and favor of those on whom they depend for their positions and indeed their living. Copies of this sermon were forwarded to the authorities in Berlin and von Gallen was repeatedly criticized in correspondence by Nazi officials and by the party's newspapers. At a second appearance, in Zonten later that year, a crowd of between 25 and 30,000 faithful turned out to hear the outspoken bishop preach again. And it was this type of popularity on the part of the faithful that inhibited the Nazi authorities from maneuvering effectively to silence the great outspoken bishop. Hitler specifically said that he was very concerned that he did not want to make a martyr out of, uh, out of Clemens von Gallen. In January 1937, von Gallen was called to Rome along with three German cardinals and Bishop von Preising of Berlin. They were to meet with the Vatican Secretary of State, Eugenio Pacelli, and also with Pope Pius XI to discuss the conditions in Germany at the time. The older, more seasoned cardinals wished to continue to write letters to the Nazis and favored some form of appeasement or uh, appealing to written channels. Uh, but the younger bishops were more headstrong and wished to be more outspoken. Secretary of State Pacelli was impressed by von Gallen. It was out of this meeting that Pius XI's encyclical Mit Brennender Sorge, or With Burning Concern, was written. In the encyclical, the Holy Father writes, whoever exalts race or the people or the state, or a particular form of state, or the depositories of power, or any other fundamental value of the human community, however necessary and honorable be their function in worldly things, whoever raises these notions above their standard value and divinizes them to an idolatrous level, distorts and perverts an order of the world planned and created by God. He is far from the true faith in God and from the concept of life which that faith upholds. The encyclical was meant to be a fatherly letter of consolation to the German Catholics. It was smuggled into Germany where uh, it was distributed first to some dozen printing houses where nearly a quarter of a million copies were, were printed and then distributed and the encyclical was to be read for the first time from the church pulpits on Palm Sunday, March 21st, 1937. 
The Bishop of Münster had been a thorn in the side of the Nazi administration since the beginning of the Reich and the beginning of his episcopacy. The authorities, despite their ruthless strategy for dealing with opposition, could not find it possible to move against the bishop. Fearing the uprising that would come from the Westphalian farmers, Internally, they vowed to move against him at a later time, with Goebbels noting that, quote, revenge was a dish that should be best served when cold. Von Galen had begun to hear rumors about increasing pressure on religious order, uh, orders around the country, very similar to what had happened during the Kulturkampf in the late 19th century. He, had, he was actually urged to act and to speak out by a Dominican friar who had visited, had come to visit him and who had reported some of these instances that were going on around the country. Von Gallen was initially reluctant, but he was shored up by the Dominican who pointed out that one does not need to withhold fighting the fire at a neighbor's house simply because the fire has not yet come to one's own house. So it was in July of 1941 that the fire actually came to von Gallen's house. When on Saturday, the 12th of July, von Gallen was notified that two of the Jesuit houses in Münster and a convent house of sisters uh, was being seized by the Gestapo. The inhabitants were being exiled. The uh, Jesuits were to leave that night and the uh, religious sisters were given 24 hours to leave. Von Gallen actually traveled to the first of the Jesuit houses and confronted the Gestapo leader at the site, becoming increasingly angry and finally exclaiming, exclaiming, now I can be silent no longer. The Jesuits were expelled despite Von Gallen's protests, and he returned to his offices in Münster to work late into the night composing the first of his three great sermons for which he became most well known. Portman actually writes about this in his book. Apparently, von Gallen was a wretched typist and could only type one finger at a time. And Portman could hear him typing all through the night uh, on his typewriter. The next morning at Mass in the Lamberti Kirche, where he had come back to serve after being in Berlin, uh, he mounted the pulpit to preach. He wasn't preaching in the... In the um, cathedral at that time because the cathedral, cathedral had, had sustained some bomb damage. The faithful expected to hear words regarding the recent uh, Royal Air Force air raids that had begun in earnest on July the 5th. Clemens August touched on the topic, but then moved on to report the eviction of the Jesuits and the sisters to his flock. He railed against the Gestapo for treating fellow Germans in such a manner uh, when they were suffering from the same privations as their fellow German citizens. Uh, indeed, he pointed out that some members had siblings that were fighting at the front, whether in Russia, or at that time it would have been in Russia, um, or some of the younger um, members of the Jesuits had gone on to serve or to be priests in the field to the various soldiers. Von Gallen then moved on to inform his flock that two of his own priests and his staff had been arrested without cause and had been placed in internal exile without charge and without recourse to the legal system. One of the priests was actually exiled to a town that was purely Protestant and housed with a Protestant family that were particularly hostile to Catholics. In this first of his sermons, he, he writes, or he says, Justice is the foundation of states. We grieve 
we see with the greatest sorrow how the foundation is being shaken today, how justice, that natural and Christian virtue, indispensable for the orderly stability of every human community, is not being unequivocally recognized and esteemed for everyone. Not only on account of the rights of the church, not only on accounts of the rights of the human person, but also out of love for our people and earnest concern for our fatherland, we beg, we insist upon, we demand justice. Who could fail to have anxiety for the stability of a house when he sees that the foundations are being undermined? After the sermon, von Gallen readily expected to be arrested. In fact, he gave specific orders who was to succeed him and manage the diocese in his absence if he was imprisoned. He also gave specific orders. At that time, it was tradition that the bell towers would ring at certain times of the day to remind the faithful about the Angelus. And there was a certain pattern for how the bells rang. And he curtailed that to be in mourning for their bishop in imprisonment were that to happen. But as it turned out, it didn't happen. Um, however, during the following week, uh, after July the 12th, uh, the Gestapo was busy evicting more nuns from two more religious houses, and von Gallen was once more on the scene to engage the authorities. He went to speak to, to the uh, obvious Gestapo leader at the scene, and when he confronted him, the Gestapo leader pulled his secretary aside and said, uh, to the secretary, make sure you take down this man's name, to which von Gallen replied, I demand that you put my name on the record. The following Sunday, July the 20th, von Gallen preached from another Münster church, the Überwasserkirche, this time comparing the Gestapo as an internal enemy, destroying Germany from within, to the Allied bombers who were destroying and working havoc on the country from without. He encouraged the faithful, saying, and this is one of his uh, most famous um, metaphors that he used. He says, we are the anvil and not the hammer. But take a look in the blacksmith shop. Ask the smith and let him tell you what is formed on the anvil takes its shape not only from the hammer, but also from the anvil. The anvil cannot hit back and doesn't have to. It only has to be firm and hard. If it is sufficiently tough, firm, hard, then usually the anvil lasts much longer than the hammer. No matter how vehemently the hammer strikes, the anvil stands in peaceful firmness and will long serve to form that which is being, uh, that which is being forged. He also went on to speak uh, of, a, of a politician a Catholic politician, um, saying, We are at present the anvil, not the hammer. Stay strong and be firm and unshakable as the anvil does, does under all the blows that rain down upon it in most loyal serve people and fatherland, but also always ready in the face of the highest sacrifices to act according to the saying, One must obey God rather than man. God speaks to every one of us, through the conscience, informed by faith, always obey unquestioningly the voice of conscience. Take as an example the model that Prussian justice minister of old time, I have spoken of him once before, of whom King Frederick the Great 
demanded that he should overturn and annul a lawful judgment in order to satisfy the wishes of the monarch. This genuine nobleman, a Herr von Münchhausen, gave this splendid answer to his king. My head is at your majesty's disposal, but not my conscience. By this he meant to say, I am ready to die for my king, yes, I will even accept death from the public executioner. The third of von Gallen's famous wartime sermons came just two weeks later on August the 3rd, when he was once again preaching in the Lambertikirche, where he had served as the parish priest. Von Gallen had learned of the Reich's actions discussed in uh, Hitler's, uh, Hitler's book Mein Kampf about euthanizing the mentally ill. It was referred to as the T4 program. A sister, Sister Laudoberta, a religious at a facility called Marienthal that housed over a thousand mental patients, uh, sought von Gallen out. She reported that at first the patients had been mistreated by denial of food, personal care, and access to hygienic facilities. The Nazi authorities had begun to tra transport patients to facilities in the Black Forest where they were euthanized and then later cremated. Sister Laudoberta traveled secretly at night to visit the bishop and to give him this news at great personal per peril to herself. From the pulpit, von Gallen described in detail the authorities' actions in controlling and in eliminating life unworthy of life. It was a common Nazi uh, theme or, or saying at that time, exposing the ever-increasing efforts to employ the eugenic efforts of the Nazis to exterminate those deemed unfit in order to build a racially pure Aryan nation. This sermon, like the two other sermons, was copied secretly and distributed throughout Germany to other dioceses, uh, to soldiers in the field, and to Catholics throughout the Reich. The outcry from the German people was so loud and so vociferous that three weeks later Hitler canceled the T4 program uh, and uh, ceased eliminating the mentally unfit. Copies of this sermon also reached uh, other German heroes, Hans and Sophie Scholl, you may have heard of them. They were in Munich and Bavaria, and they later were known for their work of the White Rose Project, a resistance movement started by university students, and Hans and Sophie were later to be executed uh, by beheading by the Gestapo. The authorities wanted to move against von Gallen, but remained paralyzed by his stature and his popularity with the faithful Catholics of Westphalia and the faithful throughout the Reich. They planned to postpone the revenge until after they had won the war, and at a dinnertime conversation on July the 5th, 1942, Hitler is recorded as saying that after the final victory, he would have a reckoning with von Gallen, quote, down to the last penny. The reckoning, of course, was never to come. Von Gallen was to continue his efforts throughout the war, leading the German Münsterlanders, even as the Allies pressed the fight more to the fatherland. The Münster Cathedral was heavily damaged from Allied bombing, and the Episcopal Palace was rendered uninhabitable due to the relentless air raids. And for a time, von Gallen took humble rooms in the local seminary, uh, but during the last year of the war, he was forced to set up his Episcopal offices at a town called Sendenhorst in the nearby countryside. As the Allies pressed across Europe and eventually into Germany, von Gallen was as much of an advocate for his people's 
to the new occupying military government as he had been against the authorities of the Third Reich. He pressed first the Americans, they were the first ones to come through, and then later the British occupiers, to enforce curfews and to protect the German people against looting by the occupying forces and also against theft and assault and sexual attack by thousands of Polish and Russian prisoners who had been set free from prison camps or from forced labor camps and who were now wreaking havoc in the Westphalian countryside. He also advocated for the Germans who had been interned in denazification centers. In, German, in January 1946, Pius XII, Eugenio Pacelli, called for a new Cardinal's Consistory with the intention to, of bestowing the largest number of red hats at one time to date. He included three German bishops among the candidates and von Gallen in recognition for his courageous uh, stand against the Nazis and for his support of the people and also of the Holy Father was one of those three bishops. Von Gallen was able to travel to Rome for the consistory, but he and the other German bishops would not have been able to do so had it not been for the assistance of the French, British, and American occupying forces, all of whom worked diligently to provide him with transport, getting him on trains, attempting to get him on airplanes, actually giving him cash to spend uh, so that they might be able to attend the consistory. While in Rome, von Gallen made time to visit various British-administered POW camps in uh, southern Italy, and he was also sought out. He was always sought out uh, on these visits by the Münsterland soldiers, who would press him and his entourage to take notes or little pieces of paper or letters back to their family members in Münsterland. Uh, excuse me, in Münster, um, so that the family members would know that they were okay. Uh, he also, the, the soldiers would also press von Gallen to know what the status of things back home were, how things were, what was the, um, what, how bad the damage was and whatnot. Um, defiant, as always, von Gallen and his staff took as many, of, as much of the correspondence as they were able to uh, and although they weren't really supposed to, the British turned a blind eye and let, let the German prelate do this. Uh, at the same time, von Gallen began to press the British commanders to work for the early patriation of the prisoners in their care. Münster's first cardinal was not to serve his diocese for long. Von Gallen returned to Germany after the consistory, first visiting and stopping at Telta to give thanks to the Blessed Mother as he offered the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass on his 68th birthday, March 16, 1946. The next day, he delivered his first and only, or said his only first, his first and only papal Mass, pontifical Mass, pontifical high Mass uh, on that Sunday. And then by Tuesday, he was quite ill. He refused to rest. He refused to lie down. He would sit some. He refused medical care until finally his assistants called the ambulance to take him to the hospital on Tuesday morning. He was admitted to the hospital and he was diagnosed actually with a ruptured appendix. And he died the following Friday, March the 22nd, 1946, having been in Münster only a week. Clemens August von Gallen was beatified by Pope John Paul II on October the 9th, 2005. He's buried in the great cathedral in Münster 
that was restored after the war. Von Galen was a great inspiration to the German people and to the world in one of the most difficult times to date in history. He was respected by his peers, of his and by his enemies, and he is an advocate worth invoking by the laity and by the clergy during our difficult times. He once told a Jesuit priest, we Gollans, we're not good looking, and maybe we're not very smart, but we're Catholic to the marrow. So too should we all strive to be Catholic to the marrow. God bless you all. I look forward to seeing you next summer, and hopefully we won't have to keep doing these virtual things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Francis de Sales, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Benedict, pray for us. St. Thomas More, the anniversary of his death was yesterday, July the 6th. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.